the political conversation that we've been having, I would say unfortunate in most cases. I feel like most of us are asking the wrong questions. We're focusing on the wrong things. The president's got this enormous megaphone and tends to drive the news. And we end up chasing these shiny objects every single day. And what I love to be able to do from time to time is to actually stand back, get some perspective, think for a damn minute. And I am reminded of some of the best uh, times that I've had intellectually. And so I'm grateful to bring in a professor from my alma mater, Notre Dame, uh, to help me have one of those conversations about political uh, future, about the demographics in our voting system, and about a number of other philosophical questions. Again, some bigger picture questions that are not being answered, not even being asked on your everyday cable discussion show. I want to bring in Professor Christina Walbrecht, who's a political science professor at Notre Dame. Professor, thank you so much for spending some time with me at the table. It is so fun to be here, Jared. Thanks for making this work. Uh, I am so grateful to make it work. And let me start by talking about how we're making it work in quarantine or self-isolation or whatever we're calling it, where, where you are. Um, I know that not only are you dealing with uh, a fall semester that just got announced a week or so ago in person for, for South Bend, Indiana, but you're also dealing with kids who are in school and, um, from what I understand, uh, based on social media, a home renovation. So how, how the hell are you right now? Oh, let's start there. <laughs> Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is uh, I'm feeling incredibly blessed and privileged to have a job that I can do very much of it um, uh, from home and without interacting with other people. I think if you mostly see faculty teaching, um, you think of it as a, as a very interactive job. But the truth is, um, I spend a lot of time in my office by myself, preparing classes, writing, doing research, et cetera. So I certainly miss that engagement, but I feel really lucky to have a job uh, I can continue to do uh, at home and I do have kids, but they're older and pretty self-sufficient. Um, and the home renovations are just, we have no control over anything right now. <laughs> and and I'm stuck at home. And I'm looking at this wallpaper I've hated for two decades. And what is the pattern of the wallpaper? Uh, so as you know, from the bathroom renovation, which was particularly joyful, is this dark green. Um, I originally said that it's pictures of Victorians playing golf, but a friend of mine in the Notre Dame Department of English corrected me. It's apparently Edwardians playing golf. Um, you can tell There's this. really no room for pedantry in home decor. I just... <laughs> I just feel like that is that helpful, but rude at the, you know, is, is kind of my, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you're getting rid of your Edwardians. Uh, I think that that's an important uh, faculty decision. Look, interdisciplinary <laughs> collaboration is very important at Notre Dame. And I need to learn from my colleagues in fields other than my own. Um, Edwardians or Victorians, it is people playing golf a sport I do not play uh, in my bathroom for no good reason. So we own about a hundred year old house, about two miles from campus. Um, we did a ton of work on it. Then we had children and they took all of our time and money. Uh, and now that they're older uh, and there's nowhere we can go or anything we can do, uh, we're, we're looking to get back into well, it. I, I hope that it goes well and it goes swimmingly. And uh, I hope that, everyone involved because obviously those, those people who are doing that work don't have the privilege of working from their home. Uh, they have to work from your home. Uh, I hope everyone's being as safe as possible. Cause I know that that is a, that is a really difficult uh, thing to do in the best of times, let alone uh, where we are right now. 
Yeah, and I and I should say that so far, um, the reason that you've only seen destruction pictures on social media is that's all we've done. Um, <laughs> Now we're living in a destructed house, waiting until we feel comfortable that we can, as you said, very much rightly, you know, safely have people in our home to do uh, work beyond what we can do. Um, so uh, we'll keep you. I have to say, these have been uh, people who never engage with me on social media are so excited about talking to me about the tile I'm going to use on my fireplace. So um, it, it definitely gets people engaged. This is my last question about home renovations, and I know that we could probably do an entire hour on it. Um, but you have been, or at least have heard stories of off-campus student housing. Your home, as destructed as it is right now, deconstructed, <laughs> destructed, how do you think it compares to some of the more um, uh, popular student destinations? I All of my memories are 20 years old at this point, so I po- couldn't possibly think of them, but I know that you would probably know know them by heart. Um, you'll be surprised to hear, actually, that faculty do not often get invited into these <laughs> homes for social events. Um, but I also went to college and, and remember what those sorts of houses look like. Um, we've got to have you back, Jared, because there's been around campus so much uh, both destruction and construction. So some of those houses still stand. They're, they're still part of the college experience. Uh, but there are condos. There are things where people used to park for football games that are now, you know, restaurants and bars and things. So um, I'm sure they're as gross as ever. Don't get me wrong. But 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 worse than what you're dealing with is what you're trying to without question well, I'm, I'm grateful for that at least i promised people this highfalutin conversation and then we ended up talking about sticky floors um let let's 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 back up for a second the work that you do is primarily in uh american politics and specifically the lens of gender i want to start with a big picture question about masculinity we've Heard a lot of discussion this week about whether it's whether Joe Biden is looking good and presidential if he's butch enough in his uh, in his uh, mask when he leaves the house around Memorial Day, uh, if the president is masculine when he um, threatens people or accuses people of murder on Twitter. Why? Why? Why is masculine? And I say this as as the straight white guy who you know f- constantly tries to self justify. And really, just because I need the work that I do this podcast, um, why is masculinity so often our default lens, or is it our default lens, for understanding political power? So it's it's a great question, and it's the right place to start. Um, those two things, masculinity and, well, I would say power more generally, and political power in, in particular, have been linked together throughout history cross-nationally, are stereotypes that associate power over and political control and leadership with men are are pretty cross-cultural, pretty uh, cross-consistent over time, et cetera. And we could have a two-hour conversation about, well, why is that? How how do we get to that point? Um, You know, you can go back to your political theorists and think about life being nasty, brutish, and short. And that under those circumstances, the, you know, the original power, the way you become the leader is you beat up everybody else. Uh, and so if you're the sex that traditionally has more upper body strength and height and, and, and mass, then probably you pretty quickly get associated with 
um, at least one form of power. I remember, for example, that you noted when we were talking back in 2016 about how then-candidate Mike Pence often referred to then-candidate Trump as broad-shouldered. That's right. There were these, you talk about upper body strength. I mean, literally, the metaphor infects our language in every possible way. That's exactly right, right? What, what, what makes us feel protected, right? When we think of, of boiling down political leadership to its very essence, where, you know, this is the person who organizes the community, who and, and again, the initial impetus for organizing communities and not just having people live willy-nilly and have no you know, collaboration is to protect them against other threats, right? That's That sort of physical threat has certainly historically been pretty central to our ideas about what is the purpose of politics, um, what is, uh, you know, what is a, a good leader supposed to do? We could talk about the history of this you know, tied up with patriarchy in general. All of the world's major religions are patriarchal and have been historically. Um, the patriarchal traditional family structure, um, again, we can argue about men having control, physical control over women to ensure that those children uh, and their uh, their heir, their heirs are indeed their heirs, right? There's all these sort of factors oh that go together. But where we left is, right, it's 2020. Um, and I certainly don't want to say that there are not violent threats, because again, this uh, week has reminded of us of that on lots of different levels and in lots of different ways. Um, but what we're asking, you know, political leaders to do, legislators, and especially presidents, um, is probably more complicated than being strong enough to bash the other guy on the head with a club. Um, and yet, we still have these expectations. Um, as you know, some of my work has been on role models, right? As you come up and you're learning about politics, who do you see, right? What what images do you get of what political power looks like in reality, in culture, um, historically, et cetera? Uh, and so we're all socialized into these, these sorts of ideas. And it becomes very difficult um, for us to sort of pull those pieces apart. So Biden gets criticized for not being manly enough because he wears a mask. Um, on the other hand, a Hillary Clinton or a, a Nancy Pelosi is criticized for being too masculine, too aggressive, too you name it. One of the ways that we define political power is the license to use violence. And traditionally, not just for men, that that is something that is more condoned, but also, and again, you alluded to some of the events that we've just experienced this week, particularly for white men, it is much more socially acceptable to use violence in our society. How does this, through the lens of gender and through the lens of race, affect the way in which we view political power? And how is that different in 2020 than it was, say, 100 years ago when women gained the right to vote? So you're absolutely right. Um, as you know, one of the themes of, of our book is about the diversity of women. And I should mention, by the way, that the book is A Century of Votes for Women, and your co-author is Kevin Corder. So we talk about the diversity of women and, and this issue about thinking about power, thinking about gender and thinking about race is, is incredibly important um, and is actually one of the consistencies we're going to see over time, right? And so um, 
you are right that one of the things that defines a state is it is the, it has power over the legitimate use of force, right? If I decide someone is a bad person and lock them in my basement, that's called kidnapping. If the state does that, that's called imprisonment. And we recognize that as, as a legitimate act. But we said we weren't going to talk anymore about your renovation plans. So I think that's... Look, getting the guys in to build those those uh, prisons, is it's rough. you got to find the right people. <laughs> Hard to socially distant. But it it's, will solve your, your child care problem, which is... A... This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. Um, so the dimensions of this racially are incredibly important and absolutely central to uh, understanding American politics today and 100 years ago, right? So um, the stereotype of the strong black man and the way in which that's seen as a threat, like strong white men, that's fine. They protect us. They uh, have our best interests apart. But strong black men, that's a, that's a threat. For African-American women in particular, this has been a constant uh, tension and in, important issue, right? So again, the strong black woman who can endure all these things. Um, women must be protected, said the 19th century. They have to be kept in homes. They're too weak to be able to endure shocking events or these sorts of things. But of course, that definition of woman, womanhood absolutely excluded black women who were doing all of those things, were witnesses to violence and worked very, very hard, right? And so you're... You're, it's important when we think about gender stereotypes to, to often interrogate if those are stereotypes about women in general, are those stereotypes about white women? What are our different stereotypes um, about, about black women, um, et cetera? And that has come through in our politics in a lot of different ways. So in the 19th century, in the sort of post-Civil War period before women got the right to vote, political campaigns were absolutely covered in all sorts of gendered and raced language. So part of the point of politics and part of the reason that getting suffrage was so hard is that politics was itself defined by masculinity. So on voting day, you'd march around in your Civil War uniform and there'd be big bands playing and it was all very militaristic, which is, of course, a male role. And then the campaigns would really emphasize in all sorts of subtle and not so subtle ways um, oh, this party lots of talk about protection, right? What they meant is yeah. slaves are free now and which party can best, you know, protect white women. And that happened, of course, in extreme degrees in the Jim Crow, Jim Crow South, but throughout the country as well. Those dynamics aren't gone, right? I think the lens through which people uh, view people like Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams uh, versus a um, Elizabeth Warren or a Hillary Clinton is shaped not just by gender, but race as well in ways that provide unique challenges to those women seeking political power. You mentioned that you're getting rid of the wallpaper in your bathroom, and I'm guessing that's because not just that you object to the garish looks of dark green and Edwardians playing golf, but also because that period of history predates the book that you just released, A Century of Women, uh, A Century of Votes for Women. And so you're trying to rid your house of any kind of precursor eras so that you can focus more diligently, I would imagine, in your bathroom and elsewhere on on the on the women's suffrage movement. <laughs> yes, I am designing my entire house around the suffrage movement. 
It is funny that you say that because I will now shout out to my friend uh, Kirsten Campbell, uh, who happens to be married to the political scientist Dave Campbell here at Notre Dame. Uh, she, in fact, has a suffrage themed bathroom um, with all sorts of beautiful things, many of which that, that she has made and that I've often tried uh, to contribute to. We're probably not going to go that direction. Uh, how, it happens that stylistically we have a preference for the the age of our house, which is uh, the teens. So um, sort of arts and crafts, that sort of a thing. Um, the truth is, if I can try and spin this question in a way that gets back to politics, I, I would, I would be dis, I would be disappointed if you didn't, frankly, because I was, I was disappointed in myself for asking it. So I, one of the things we try to emphasize in the book, as we've already sort of discussed, is is both the consistency and the change over time. Uh, and so, um, the, some of the anti-suffrage cartoons, for example, um, would literally show, you know, a woman's choice, um, the, the home or the street corner. It was basically, you can not vote and stay home and fulfill that traditional private role that women are supposed to, to, um, uh, fulfill, or you can enter the public world of politics and basically we're going to call you a whore. Right, you you take yourself down off that 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 pedestal, and you become sort of dirty and corrupt, the way that we know politics is. I don't think it's a stretch to say it's those same sort of ideas behind calling Hillary Clinton a nasty woman in 2016. Well, I, it's funny to, to me. I, I think of this, and I, I think of the argument of women, you know, can we have it all in many ways, women do have it all in the sense of politically, they're forced to be both of those. If they choose to be engaged, they have to be both a homemaker and, and a streetwalker if they're going to uh, suffer the slings and arrows that, that will naturally come their way in American politics. I think one of the exciting things, cause I try to be hopeful from time to time. How dare you? I know uh, that as we have more women in politics, I think we're seeing some different models for dealing with that. Right. So you're absolutely right. There is reams of research to show that women really have this difficult balancing act. They have to demonstrate that they are strong enough and display what have been traditionally male uh, characteristics enough to fulfill that political role. But it makes people uncomfortable if they're too much like men, right? And uh, I think of uh, Hillary Clinton giving her recorded speech the night that she was nominated at the DNC from her kitchen, introduced by her daughter, talking about the kind of mom that she was. Um, and to watch, I've had really great students here at Notre Dame do fascinating papers on, on women candidates um, about how they try to... Um, to balance those two things, right? And in recent years, we've had fascinating examples, right? The the vets who are standing there with their women who are standing there with, you know, tattoos on their arms, but they're holding their kid. You know, they're talking about uh, the battles that they were in, but also that they're motivated uh, by caring about uh, their children. We've had women getting ultrasounds in political ads, breastfeeding in political ads. Um, we're really starting trying to push these ideas of, of motherhood and, and politics um, in really different ways. It's not to say that all of them are going to be successful, um, but there does seem to be, and in perhaps a backlash to 2016, some hunger for those sorts of things, for those, for more feminine models of leadership. I want to ask you about whether we should expect different 
outcomes from women leaders, because I think that's important. But because you've mentioned 2016, I'm thinking about there's a tendency in political strategy. Now, obviously, this is a little bit outside of the the, the pure academic aegis that, that you would operate in. But there is a tendency in political strategy to fight the last war. And for Democrats and Republicans who are taking lessons from 2016, what would be the signs, do you think, of overcorrection, for example, on the gender issue? Because there was a certain sense of Hillary Clinton and what she represented and the backlash to that. What I was fascinated by in this cycle was how much, for example, the Bernie Sanders uh, vote diminished when he no longer was in opposition in the primary season to Hillary Clinton. So how does this how does this change and and what are the potential overcorrections because we're we're dedicated slavishly to fighting the last war in politics? Uh, you're absolutely correct about that, of course. Um, and and everyone's trying to figure out what lesson they can lead. I cannot tell you how many people have asked me, does this mean that a woman can't uh, be president? Or does the 2020 primary season mean that the parties aren't ready um, to nominate a woman? Did anyone ask you after 2016, uh, does this mean a, a man can't be, uh, you know, uh, nominated? Like, I'm just trying to imagine having that conversation with you in, in, July or August of 2016, do you think a man will ever be uh, nominated again to lead the Democratic Party? I'm guessing you did not get that question. I, I'm literally like speechless because it's so aggravating. Yes. <laughs> well, I have that effect on men and women, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. At least my consistency is intact. I can fall back on social science, right? Um, and, and simply say that we so far have an N of one. There one woman has been nominated by a major party, right? As you said, many men, more than 40 of them, have lost when they had their president, <laughs> when they had their party's nomination to be president. Um, and they were not successful. And that was just, by the way, in the Republican field um, last cycle. Yes, exactly. And and even in, even in general elections, nobody says, like, I guess, you know, in the 19th century, let's not... Um, nominate any more tall guys with scraggly beards because that's not working for us. Um, they, they kept I've doing it. I've trusted them. I'm just telling you. Now now it's like the scraggly beard is back, right? It's COVID. And, and I actually got rid of my beard because I couldn't stop touching my face and I was genuinely afraid for my family's health and also my own sanity because I felt like Robin Williams and Jumanji asking what year is it? But that was also dating me too, because there's been like eight Jumanji movies since then. So I'm not even referencing the most. Anyway, that's a separate question. Well, come talk to me when you've, when you've colored some of yours purple as I did to distract from the dark roots. So everybody's got to do what they got to do, Jared. <laughs> but we're taught, let, let's, the question is about overcorrection. We, we look at this and say 2016 taught us X and how do we stop doing X, but then we accidentally do way too much Y. And what, what, what do you see is, is, is that already playing out as far as you can tell? So that's, that's absolutely playing out. Um, and it's absolutely been a concern of democratic strategists. So, um, it pains me to do this, but I'm actually going to promote, uh, my friend Seth Maskett's, uh, work. He has a book coming out, uh, called learning from loss. And what he's done since 2016 is talk to activists in those first four States, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. Um, and, and he shows that there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, is there still, you know, in a really tight, and this is important to say, we're at a, we're at a point of incredibly tight 
competition in nearly all of our politics and certainly in national politics. So when when Hillary Clinton's losing the presidency over 80,000 votes in three, you know, post-industrial states in the upper Midwest, you you really got to be thinking about these sorts of questions. And so this question about if there's just a, a bunch of people still in the electorate who at the end of the day are going to find a reason not to vote for a woman um, is a concern. Or was she too moderate? You know, like what what are we supposed to learn from this? I think there are tons of really interesting, important things we've learned from 2016. But I do not think that 2016 tells us whether or not a woman can be elected president. Admitting that we don't know is something that normal people hate to do, but scholars love to do. And I think it's nice to hear you embracing (laughs) embracing that. Let's talk about people who have gotten it right, though, not political scientists. Talk about outcomes, different outcomes. Do we notice, and I'm thinking about this anecdotally because I'm a consumer of news, I see People like, uh, as as the president refers to her, that woman in Michigan, although what I will say, you know, the, the governor, <laughs> uh, Whitmer. She has a name, yes. Yeah. Uh, she has, and a title, by the way. as And a title. Governor yeah. Whitmer. And, and I also think about, for example, um, the prime minister of New Zealand. We've seen outcomes that are connected to this specific moment in our history, this COVID crisis. And what do we know about women leaders? We have a bigger N, we have a bigger number of of women leaders who are involved and responsible for outcomes. How do they do? How do they stack up? And what is, and what can we what can we generalize? And how can we use that to smear them? I mean, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the talking points. <laughs> so I'm gonna answer this in a slightly roundabout way, only because it is the centennial year for women's suffrage. So I'm going to start with that. Um, I have had a lot of conversations as someone who works on the period right after suffrage. a journalist, and for good reason, I totally get it. And the story they want to write is, here's the impact of women's suffrage. That because women are the electorate, these outcomes were different, these policies were different, etc. And I get that 100%. However, my first answer is always, The impact of the 19th Amendment is that women got to go to polling places and cast their ballot. Like achieving that equity was the point that we're going to have a society that that sort of recognizes that women are also citizens, that women should also have a say in their um, uh, in their choice of who's going to rule them um, as, as men should. And so if the differences aren't if the outcomes aren't dramatically different as a result, that's okay. Um, it, it means that men and women, it turns out, are pretty similar politically. They're both, as I like to put it, um, equally as capable of sophisticated political reasoning. How Where that level is is, of course, a different question, but they're, they're both sort of capable of doing it. Um, and then I, you know, another time we could talk about differences between men and women now and why it's become more consequential. Um, and I would want to say the same thing about women leaders, right? If, if any nation state or society wants to take advantage of the most qualified, interesting, you know, uh, skilled people to run its incredibly complex government. Um, it's just ridiculous to not include half of that population. Um, and they're so not included that it, it it's got to look like, you know, it's, it's not just by chance, <laughs> uh, but something else uh, is happening here. And so when women get elected, one of the values is just to show that that we recognize capacity regardless of gender, right? And and that 
can be, in my mind, frankly, sufficient. But of course, a lot of the impetus in trying to get more women elected and the reason that people are so interested and concerned about it is the belief that women will do differently. Um, let me give the let me give the bad news or the pessimistic point first. Um, there has been a lot of uh, interest in how women uh, leaders, prime ministers, and presidents have governed uh, during COVID, um, and I think that's a really interesting question. I, I'm now struck by the fact that you said we always want to admit what we don't know, and the fact is we don't know. It's three months into this thing. I think the question we would want to ask ourselves, or at least the first question I would ask myself before assuming it's women, is to ask, are there particular kinds of political systems that are more likely to give women the opportunity to be elected, right? Is it the places where women have been more successful? Are there other aspects of either that political system or that society that might also allow when women are elected, when women happen to be in those offices, when these crises come, to be more effective in, in doing that. Um, there's counter-arguments to that as well. Um, but the places that have never had women leaders are generally not a random selection. Um, and so that, that would sort of be my, my first question. I was going to give the more positive answer, which, which um, yes, we have more women leaders, and there's great research uh, being done on that. Um, where we've, of course, had the most women has been as legislators, and there's fantastic work on that. Um, the first thing to say is, um, in general, the literature shows that that women are better legislators in a number of different ways. They tend to bring home more bacon to their districts. They tend to be more responsive to district preferences. Um, they respond uh, more quickly and accurately to um, constituent inquiries. Um, their bills are more likely to get passed um, and, and make it through committee, et cetera. That might be because women are just better. And you know that I am sympathetic to that point of view. Yes, of course. Obviously. Um, it might be that, that women, because of their status in society and because of socialization, um, have been trained to be more collaborative. They, as someone has said, we always talk about how women, they make compromises. They can reach across the aisle. Part of the answer to that is if you don't have physical strength, the way to survive is to be able to get along with people. And, well, that's certainly and, why I've been, you know, subsisting almost entirely on a sense of humor for my entire life. I mean, that's whatever. They're all coping mechanisms. This is what I'm saying. Survival mechanisms, I should say. The other process, and, and again, this gets into the kind of stuff political scientists are interested in. Is it something about, you know, if you took two Harvard educated lawyers and you, you know, let them both be legislators, would the woman just be better, more collaborative, more able to get stuff done, more responsive for whatever reasons, you know, inherently to women or something like that. Maybe it's probably more likely that the process uh, remains gendered in ways that might produce those outcomes. What do I mean by that? We know that when women run, they're as likely to win as men. However, we also know that this outcome comes about because, or at least partially because, women candidates are on average, more qualified to run than our men candidates. They're more likely to have previous political experience. They're more likely to have the kind of educational backgrounds that we expect of elected officials. Uh, they've had more leadership experience, perhaps in their communities or, or in business. That doesn't mean every woman candidate is stronger on those dimensions than every male candidate, of course. 
But we might be seeing that that women tend to be better uh, legislators in particular and and maybe executives as well, in part because it's just harder for them to get there. And the ones who get there are particularly skilled, ambitious, I mean, in a good way. um, (laughs) The fact that you have to say that, by the way, I think. I know part of the problem you're 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 part of the problem truly i just don't i just that that's where this conversation was always going so you're right to say when you talk about this moment and covid that we're three months in and we we really can't evaluate leaders men and women on something that is still very much in the process of exploding but what we do know already is that this disaster has and will continue to disproportionately affect women and in particular, women of color. What's your best understanding of, I'm not going to, obviously, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to know, you know, how damaging you think that is, but because of your expertise, I'm forced to ask you a, a less human question, which is what's your best understanding of how that disproportionate impact might manifest itself in our next general election? So this is a great question. I do want to point out first that this is why no one really wants to talk to political scientists because we all we do is tell you what we don't know. Um, It's been beaten into us. So you are absolutely right that women are suffering in all sorts of different ways disproportionately uh, during COVID. Everything for the women who may have the kind of jobs that let them work at home but have small children and no longer have childcare options to domestic workers and nannies who may be losing their jobs to you know, women tend to work in restaurants. They, they're they overrepresented in healthcare, um, all these places that are particularly dangerous these days. So the question is, what does that mean for voting and voter turnout um, in 2020 when we think about women voters? And I think it's important to, 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 to be clear that in some, ch- in some cases, we might be talking about changes in voting, like this group might become more likely to vote Republican or Democratic. In other cases, we might be thinking more closely about mobilization, right? So maybe, and actually demobilization is much more common. If you're a lifelong Republican, you don't say, I'm going to go for a vote for the Democrat now. You might, but very few people do that. What you say is, I'm not going to bother voting, especially now. I'm going to get sick and I got to request an absentee ballot. Um, this is this is too complicated. And that demobilization is incredibly helpful, incredibly impactful. You know, we have reason to believe that um, uh, lack of enthusiasm among black voters in Michigan, for example, um, may have played a role in in Clinton's defeat there. The other sort of background I would want to give is when we think about women voters, it's important to say that in 2016, the gender gap was not particularly large historically. So it's important to say that uh, Trump's misogynistic language, the Things that he has been credibly accused of doing um, were not enough to sway a lot of women who already thought of themselves as Republicans or, or on that side, or who found his uh, language about the economy and immigration and trade uh, very effective for where they sit uh, economically, um, as well as racially, right? Who also, um, women actually, it turns out, can be both racist, as we were reminded this week. Um, as well as sexist. There are a lot of women who who we're not comfortable with, as Mrs. America has been reminding us, uh, uh, with you know disrupting traditional gender roles. 
I swear I'm getting to a point here. So overall, white women were about as Republican as they've usually been, which is to say less Republican than white men, but much more Republican than black women, for example. Uh, Black women were more Democratic in 2016 than were black men, but both of them were overwhelmingly in favor of the Democratic candidate. What's interesting is when you look even closer at that data among white women, is that the real shift there, the reason there's there's no change in white women is because two groups of white women went in different directions. The white women with college degrees and or higher incomes tended to move towards uh, the Democratic Party and towards Hillary Clinton in 2016, whereas white women without college degrees and maybe less income moved away from the Democratic Party and, to- for, and toward Trump. I think this is an important you know, point to make. We've interviewed all of these working class men in diners in Pennsylvania. The truth is their vote choice didn't move that much in 2016. You ought to be talking to the waitresses. Those less well-educated white women, that's who moved towards Donald Trump. That's a group I'm particularly going to be interested in in 2020, right? As they're facing economic hardship. As, as COVID is having impacts on, on them, either because they work in restaurants or they're you know, uh, working in hospitals or whatever it might be, are those women who were very helpful to Trump in 2016 going to move back in any discernible way towards the Democratic Party? I think the question for Black women is less of a conversion question. I don't think there's any circumstance under which I would expect Black women voters in any degree to, to move towards Donald Trump. But it is going to be about one about mobilization. This, this group is clearly so key to the Democratic Party. How is the Democratic Party going to recognize that? Um, and, and that's going to help get those Black women to the polls in 2020. It is going to be hard to vote in 2020. It's going to be especially hard for Black people to vote. It's going to be especially hard for poor people to vote. Um, And so that dynamic where women fall into those categories, there are more Black women voters than there are Black men voters there, you know, et cetera, is I, I think going to play a big role in the 2020 election. Well, you talked about demobilization earlier, and then you switched. Let's talk explicitly about suppression, because the president on his Twitter feed and elsewhere is enthusiastic about demobilization. He wants to talk about uh, the vice president's gaffe, about uh, who, who ain't black, or he wants to talk about how Twitter is censoring conservatives, or he wants to talk about anything other than job performance. He's fine on the demobilization side, but this is a two punch, you know, a two punch move here because there's also an effort, a a partisan effort, I would argue, to suppress the vote beyond even the impact of COVID. So can we talk about how this is kind of a perfect storm against which all of these voters, especially those most vulnerable, are going to have to fight in just a couple months with potentially no assistance from their federal, state, or local governments. So it's as bad as you say. Um, you are right that there is a... I hate uh, when it's as bad as I say. You're welcome. Um, well, I, so I put my absentee ballot for the Indiana State primary in the mail this morning. Ours is uh, June uh, 2nd. So is ours here in D.C.? Okay. All right. So our ballot is also full of all sorts of people that have long since endorsed Joe Biden, but um, including, of course, our former mayor. Um, Right, of course. 
the list of people, the list of places, I've been voting in the same place for 20 years, but given the circumstances, there's a reduced number of places that even if I wanted to vote in person, I can do that in Indiana, or at least in, in South Bend, Indiana, in, in June 2020, right? And so who has the resources, and I, by that I mean time, interest, um, initiative to track down where they should be voting if they didn't bother, which I, I we're only going to be barely under the, the, the deadline here. And we're a fairly politically interested household, right? To request that absentee ballot, to get it, to send it in in time. Um, the laws in Indiana require my ballot to arrive by, by noon on, on June 2nd. Um, and I'm cutting it and close. By the way, this is all at the same time when we're trying to defund or, or you know, perpetually underfund or debilitate in some other way the postal service. Yes, I yes, yes. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. I just when you said it was bad as I said, I realized I hadn't said everything earlier. So I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> um, you know, and and we should. And by the way, there's a whole separate conversation about federal work and the postal service in particular being a place where certain people can get a job just as some of the places and and genres of work that you described earlier are refuges for people who have fallen through the cracks of society in some other way. If you've, I worked in a restaurant, I grew up in a restaurant business. If you've got a record, a felony record, sometimes a restaurant will still hire you. If you're an illegal immigrant, a restaurant will still hire you or they would, you know, and so, so these places, Again, I just want to talk about the wider picture and and really encapsulate. I started with a big question, and I and as we're building toward the end here, I want to end with a big one, which is this suppression and demobilization effort is so all encompassing, and it has every aspect of this crisis folded on top of it. So it it is it is it is disastrous in ways that I don't even think we can appreciate. So I think that's right. So I'm going to say probably three or four things that may not fit together at all, but I'm going to say. The first, this is not my area of expertise, but the Postal Service is a constitutional requirement. Nobody says the bridges are running out of money. The bridges are not making a profit. The interstate highway system is not profitable. Um, The military has not paying for itself, right? That's not how government agencies work. The Postal Service is a service uh, provided to the American people by the federal government. Stop. So those conversations and that framing of government as being similar to business is widespread and really problematic. So that's the first thing I want to say. Second thing I want to say is in the book, because I have to keep bringing up the book, one of the puzzles we're trying to solve is, you know, women before the late 1960s, early 1970s were not more likely to vote Democratic or Republican uh, than men. Uh, They voted fairly similarly. If anything, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, women voted more for Republican candidates than did men. And when we try to understand that, one of the important things to to focus on is what other changes are happening in women's lives during this period that led to the gender gap. Because I think some of those, you, you just put your finger on a bunch of similar sorts of changes. So there was a lot of talk about, right, the the Democratic Party becomes the party, the pro-choice party and the pro-ERI party, and that must be why. That's almost certainly not very much or any of the story of, of the emergence of the gender gap in 1980. Rather, what you see happening is that as women en masse go to, to enter the, the workforce in the 60s and 70s at, at levels not seen historically, 
They are overwhelmingly entering public employment. They're school teachers, they're social workers, they're nurses. Um, their income, their economic interest depends upon public institutions. Very similar to the way that you're saying that immigrants, people of color, other sort of disenfranchised groups are, are not randomly distributed through the economy. Um, they're not, and women are not. And so um, what we saw there is uh, women became, not dramatically, but somewhat more likely to favor basically social welfare really broadly defined, right? Yes, we should spend more to help poor people. Yes, we should spend more to help the economy, but also we should spend more on education and we should spend more on healthcare, right? And that might be because women are deeply compassionate and care and all that sort of stuff. Maybe, might be. It might also be because that's where women's economic self-interest has been. When when labor unions favor but that would mean that women make decisions for the same reason other people do. And I've that can't be right. That can't possibly it's crazy be right. talk. I mean, the crazy an economist to come in here and tell me that because I can't believe a, a political scientist uh, you know, I mean that that's that's that doesn't it's only believable if it comes from a white white male economist. Yes. That's that's just a truth. That's I, just I, I a, just need to call up the University of Chicago really quickly. I'm sure they'll be able to find someone who can I'm sorry. The last thing I want to mention is is what you were saying about sort of voter suppression. And I, I want to emphasize how devious this is in so many ways. Which is to say you have lots of people who are giving their labor, either you know their actual work or their activism, um, to try to address racial inequalities, uh, migration inequalities, gender inequalities in this country. If they have to fight simply for the ability for people of color, for example, to have access to ballot places within a reasonable driving distance of their homes, or to not face barriers that that particularly burden that community. They're not doing other things they need to do, right? It takes time and effort away from, let's do something about, uh, oh, I don't know, police violence, or uh, let's get engaged about, um, you know, issues of racial disparities in schools or in certain occupations. And I'm not saying people aren't obviously working on those issues, but to continually have to refight the the the, the cause of a basic access to voting rights takes a, a population, be it women or people of color or immigrants, who already have more challenges than the other group and, and sets them back another step. Yeah. Imagine what we could be working on if we weren't working on just saying in the midst of a pandemic, let's make it easy for people to vote uh, online or via mail or whatever it might be, right? Sure. Uh, and and the continually need to come against a question that, frankly, should have been addressed a hundred years ago, um, is is has real political consequences. Well, and and frankly, consequences that the current administration is, um, you know, who who started with an attorney general that once argued that there was no. Uh, there was no voter discrimination in Shelby County and, and, and has only gotten worse in terms of uh, representation at the Department of Justice uh, has has really uh, they, they seem to enjoy those. In a recent discussion I had with Twitter and Princeton historian Kevin Cruz, the conversation and you mentioned just about the labor force um Human capital stock, as the Trump administration is referring to us. Um, and he said that his prediction was that because of what you've described as 
these frontline workers who, and, and in many cases, women who found the employment there, but of all kinds, of all genders and sexes, uh, he believes that labor will be a political issue and, and in a way that it hasn't been recently because of this reemergence of that. So let me ask you, without obviously having heard that conversation and just having me having recapped it briefly for you, and I would recommend other episodes of At the Table and not just the one that, that you're on right now for people who are listening, that conversation is also quite good. That was a fascinating point to me because it does seem to me like there will be this reinvigoration of power and labor. You know, you, you describe women entering the workforce in the 70s and 80s. That is as the labor movement started to contract. Do you think that there could be this confluence of, of female political power if women who are in the labor force in these sectors in a disproportionate amount in the kinds of fields that are more likely to be frontline workers suddenly have this wind at their back, is there a possibility for some positivity there? First of all, I, I think it would be incredibly positive for our political system and for uh, our politics and and for society if labor had more power um, than it does today. And there's no question, as you said, that 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 political power has been declining Um, because I'm all about historical tidbits. I I will say um, the labor movement was one of the strongest opposition uh, opponents uh, to the Equal Rights Amendment initially, um, in part because part of their power came out of arguing for like the single male householder who needed to make a living wage for his entire family. And and really, when you expand the, the size of the workforce, that actually makes it harder for labor to effectively strike and those sorts of things. They figured out pretty early in the 1970s, though, that the, all the growth in labor and in, in sort of jobs that you could imagine organizing successfully tended to be in women's jobs, right? It was the public health sectors that were, and, and public education sectors that were growing while industry was sort of declining. And, and, and so they've been a real partner uh, for a lot of women's equity, um, you know, 50, going on 50 years now. My concern, and it, it has an interesting analogy to the problem of organizing women, right? So the women's movement went through this step of sort of, um, consciousness raising where, where basically you had to sit a bunch of women around and explain to them the way that you feel and the, the experiences you're having are not just yours. They're collective. They're, they're something that are collective to the gender. And so let's have a movement, right? That, that really wasn't such a stage in the civil rights movement. And why is that? Uh, women, unfortunately live with men, their interests are tied up with men. Um, and, and so seeing sort of collective interests is just more difficult one advantage, if I can say something so offensive as that, of segregation is there's no question which group is being held down and that it's a systematic problem, not an individual one. I worry that with the and, and I'm I'm gonna say the least original thing ever, labor economists are gonna be rolling their eyes, right? Part of the change is that women's work remains less concentrated than than men's work. Right. And so if we're saying women tend to be the restaurant workers or, you know, et cetera, I'm worried about how well we can successfully organize people in, in this sort of scattered form than right in an industrial factory. Now that said, and here's here, I think is the important general point to make, right? There can be discontent, but without some sort of organization and leadership to help mold and and provide an outlet for that discontent, it doesn't go very far or it goes, you know, you just 
go off and play video games and, and drink heavily or something. There's lots of uh, there's lots of responses to political discontent that aren't engaging in politics. Well, first of all, how dare you? accurately describe how I've been dealing with. You know, that was specifically at you, Jared, you know, that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, My animal crossing Island is spectacular. So I'm not (laughs) sure what it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's the, could a depressed person make this? The greatest pressure for my kids. They've never wanted any sort of Nintendo or whatever it is you play that game on. (laughs) Um, and, and now they're left out. Um, no, I, I think what's fascinating to me is, and where I think there's hope for the kind of prediction that um, Professor Cruz had, is we'd already seen a strengthening, just ironically, shockingly, of uh, teachers' unions at the state level, um, pushing effectively, striking effectively. Um, there has been a lot of work to organize, um, of course, uh, healthcare workers in different sorts of ways. Like the institutions exist to help make these these claims and and take advantage of this political moment. And even for what I just said about, you know, retail workers and hospitality workers being so so um so scattered, the work of organizers, the the fifteen dollar minimum wage uh initiative, et cetera, has I think helped in the last couple of years build a network that can be activated during this particular crisis. Um, the problem, of course, will just be getting a word in when we're fighting about who looks more or less manly in a mask. I think that's an important fight to have, and I think that cable news should have it for three days. Let me go back to, you and I spoke several times in that 2016 cycle. You discussed the way a woman at the top of the ticket motivated political engagement by women to vote against her, to vote for her. And when we spoke afterwards, after the results of the election, to look at those initial mobilizations, the marches that were mobilized against the Trump administration, the women's march, this is the, the, the first one that really breaks the, the, the fever of that discontent to, you, to do something with it that's not drinking or playing Animal Crossing. And so I want to ask, in terms of that organization... Where has that energy gone? Has it waned? And what do we expect for those people who marched in Washington when that was still a thing that humans could do safely? Weird. And I know it feels like a million years ago. And now I think about, um, actually, you know what? I'll, I'll just say this, and this is just from my own coverage. Um, Trump's inaugural socially distant compliant. That was, that was, I think the best thing you can say about it. Um, that's of course what got me in trouble, but, uh, it's true. Um, (laughs) has that, has that waned? Has that, where does that energy go? Even before we get to the fact that we're, if, if I were asking you that question three months ago, you'd have a different answer. Where did the energy for the women's March and et cetera go? But now or maybe it hasn't. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm making a terrible assumption. Well, so I guess I want to say a couple of things, which is that women have been the backbone for political movements in the United States throughout history. Um, they were the, you know, the backbone of, of abolitionism, temperance, suffrage movement, a whole bunch of progressive things, early organized labor. Um, turns out these are the people that show up and, and, 
and do the hard work of organizing, which is really hard work. And by the way, not just in politics, if you're involved in your local church, if you're involved in your local community group, women are often doing the work. And I think that it's, it's, it's not a politics thing is what I should, is what I should emphasize. So my colleague, uh, Corinne McConaughey, who will be at Princeton starting in the fall, she makes this point really effectively about the 19th century, that if we just look at women's organizations and we look at like temperance organizations, we're missing so much political activity, right? It's like you said, it's the women's church group. It's the, um, the reading clubs, the, all these sorts of things that were really places where, where women were effective. And I think we are seeing some of that in the last couple of years as well, right? Um, maybe now it's your, your mom's group on Facebook or, um, you know, some sort of other professional just overrun with anti-vaccine, uh, you know, <laughs> just, just, I'm sorry, we have a four month old and just the, 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 <laughs> the new parent shock is rough, Jared, you learn to just let it Everyone go. Has like, an opinion about my son and what he should do. And it's very strange. I don't, <laughs> I don't, just, I don't want them to, to, to care. <laughs> just don't. Look, look, 150 years ago, your mother and your mother-in-law would have strong opinions. That's now it's everybody with an internet account and it's terrible. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, but you so, were making an actual point before. No, no, no. So, so I want to point out that women have often been the backbone. That said there, it is, there has been a spectacular level of organizing and activism by women since 2016. Um, you mentioned the Women's March. Um, I would add Moms Demand Action, taking up um, from Parkland. Um, I would add the Me Too movement. Yes. Um, sort of all these places. And, and even Women's March was sort of this anti-Trump sort of a thing expressed itself in so many gendered ways, right? The pink hats and and the the what the 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 sort of placards were saying, right? These these aren't just involving lots of women, but they're involving lots of gendered strategies that play on ideas of motherhood, that play on ideas of of women's rights, um, etc. I don't think we fully know the reason why that is. It may be partly the just we know that threats are very mobilizing and that Donald Trump is seen by many as a unique uniquely dangerous threat, um, and perhaps by women in particular. Um, where has that energy gone? Um, I think what's fascinating about the Women's March, which was in fact the best that we can tell, the largest single day protest event in American history. More than 1% of the population participated in the Women's March. That might not sound like very much, but you can't get 1% of the population off their couches to do anything. What you saw in at that march that was so enormous is that activists created the space for a lot of people who are not normally activists to express an unbelievably high level of frustration, right? So I, I've been to a lot of social and political protest marches, and often it's, you know, 90% the same people. Um, I used to joke that... Uh, I was at the 2016 DNC and that the people outside uh, protesting for Bernie and 20 other things, I'm pretty sure were the same people that I saw protesting outside of the White House during the first Gulf War in the spring of uh, 1991 when I happened to be in D.C. Um, but that wasn't the story of the Women's March. That was a lot of people who don't whose own self-identification is not activist or protester, who at some point came to see like this is what people do, like, to you know, like, establish that frustration. I think it would be hard to imagine that a, a march of that breadth would sustain itself 
in continued activism at that level. Um, that, that's just unlikely to happen. Um, but to the extent that it has made people more engaged in other ways, paying more attention to local races, they were put in touch with resources that quickly told them how you could contact your member of Congress or easily give money to a political candidate. Those sorts of things. That that is, I think, where we're seeing the long term um, long term impact. Um, there are other people who think what you think what you do. And if you don't want to go out every Saturday and wear a pink hat and march, that's fine. But what you could do is quickly send this text to your member of Congress or quickly donate. I think projects like Swing Left are brilliant. Um, it's what parties used to do. Parties used to gather all the money and then distribute it where it was needed. And that's what Swing Left's trying to do. So you can sit, as I do in a district that's not going to to, to be anything other than red, um, and find somewhere else where you might be able to make a difference, et cetera. So it's, again, I think the people that stepped up as entrepreneurs, as political leaders, and said, let me help channel this. Uh, the people who gave money to Emily's List, which dramatically could expand its facilities to support more women, you know, all that sort of stuff. That's where I, that's the, where the hard work happens. And I think the important work happens. I'm fascinated by it. And I think obviously the big question will be, can former Vice President Joe Biden and whomever he picks as his running mate, and he has said it will be a woman, which is, um, you know, about as descriptive as, as you could ask for, really. Um, how does that tap into the enormous political energy that is that has found itself aligned against Donald Trump or aligned toward progressive causes in the last three years, because that, that is, that is an amount of, you know, political energy. I always think of it. I try to apply the hard, hard science rule that it doesn't, it is not created or destroyed. It is just, uh, you know, transmuted over time. And I wonder if, if, if Biden can capture it. And I hope, uh, for a lot of reasons that, it, that he does, but I think it remains to be seen. And, and by the way, I should mention that a lot of this can be discussed in much more, in a much more scholarly way and without my interrupting jokes in the book that you wrote with your uh, writing partner and fellow academic Kevin Corder, A Century of Votes for Women, American Elections Since Suffrage. It is basically everything after the tile in your bathroom or the wallpaper in your bathroom uh, was created. Um, <laughs> Professor Walbrick, before I let you go, one of the things that I've been doing and, and trying to have a little bit of fun with, um, it's, it's macabre, but I guess it's fun as well is to ask people since we're in quarantine and we're all kind of experience experiencing this, it's a unique social experience that we are all, even though you and I are kind of enjoying white collar quarantine and in a way in, in which we've described is, is different and in many ways, a lot easier than for a lot of other people. But I, because it's one of these rare social things that everyone is experiencing, I, I try to have the, and, and also because of my background as a restaurateur, as someone who's involved in food, loves food and likes to talk about food is I, I know that you have something in your pantry or deep freezer or somewhere that is the piece of food or the item that you are looking forward to the least. And if things really hit the fan and you were unable to go out or if you're just kind of, you know, if things are bad and you're, if you feel unsafe, what will be the thing that you eat the last before? Uh, and, and if we hear you talk about it or tweet about it, we know to send, to send help to Northern central Indiana. 
See, but this is a problem, Jared. I am so perfectly made for these times. Processed food, like this does not scare me. So there's no way that vegetables are going to be left, right? So I'm not going to have to face that terror of actually having to eat <laughs> substantial greenery. I forget, you know, people, people in real, you know, you're from the Pacific Northwest, but you've gone native with the amount of time you've spent in the Midwest. And now you're, you know, you're an entirely uh, processed food person. I don't know. I don't know what's happened. I, I will say that, that uh, my parents were originally Midwesterners and I, and I grew up in a pretty meat and potatoes home, but the, the, the shocking thing. So, so all that processed and frozen stuff in the back of the freezer, like bring it on. That sounds fantastic. Um, because I'm not a foodie, the thing I'm most proud of is, is right before this all happened. Um, I finally found the perfect tikka masala recipe. Um, my daughter and I make it every 10 days and we make so much of it that we eat it. And we, I don't think we're, if, let's put it this way. If we ever get sick of having tikka masala almost every single day, I will know we've, we've hit a crisis point. I love it. In, in, in terms of COVID. I love it. I really need you to send me. That's a hilarious recipe. I've, I've got a, um, a wonderful Indian cookbook that uh, a friend of mine who I trust very much recommended to me, but I will enjoy uh, getting your tikka recipe for, for uh, so I can also make large pots of it. And that is hilarious. I love it. Um, I know what mine is. Uh, it has changed recently. I actually mentioned this and uh, I said it was, it was some applesauce that I had bought at Costco and, and had never even opened. And my neighbor I don't think because he heard it because I don't think anyone actually listens to these conversations. Um, but, but, uh, he, he asked me, he's like, Hey, you know, we've got a one and a half year old. You guys oh, nice. have any, and I was like, Oh my God, you're taking this off by hand. So I just <laughs> I handed him like three gallons of applesauce. And so now I have to look for some other, uh, some other food item. I think it's going to be, my wife is recently <laughs> free. I think it's going to be one of the gluten-free things. I just, I don't, I don't like it. I don't trust it. I want gluten. All that to say, I really appreciate your time. You've been extremely generous with it. And I also appreciate the scholarship. Christina Walbrecht, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. Thank you for joining me at the table. My pleasure. Thanks, Jared.